1: Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, joined in the studio with Lee Chen Ren. We're going to be talking with John Dobby, the founder and chief investment officer of Astoria Portfolio Advisors. John founded Astoria in 2017. He has 19 years working across macro, ETF strategy, quant research, equity derivatives. He Spent eight years at Morgan Stanley's institutional uh, team. John, welcome back to the show. Thanks for coming great to great to be uh, here again. thank you very much I should note our discussion is not tied to the offer of safe investment products and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wizard its affiliates. Tell us a little bit about how you know Astoria being on the ETF strategy side um, how tell our listeners a little bit more about about your firm what you're focused on um, and who should should think about you guys?
2: Sure, absolutely. So we are an ETF strategist like you said uh, which all that means is that we invest uh, for clients uh, exclusively using ETFs. You know, just we believe that they're you know tax efficient. You can get multi-asset exposure, um, you know, factor investment. So we started the firm uh, two years ago. Um, I do want to say that I have been working with ETFs uh, since the very early days. I began my career in the late '90s, so I was the derivative uh, analyst at Merrill Lynch, and we covered ETFs. Um, so just a quick anecdote before. You know let's say the emerging market ETFs were available like we would create like a tracking basket to, to get exposure to emerging markets so as the name says uh, a portfolio advisors we really are advisors to uh, clients portfolios um, I named the firm after Astoria which is our born and raised uh, it's the ultimate value trade we can talk about it if you want it's a great lesson uh, when I grew up in the 80s in uh, Astoria Queens you know people discounted the market and of course, like the value trade, it always comes back. And um, I'm proud to say it, but when I when you look at like online Wikipedia, uh, there's guys like Cliff Astness, Ray Dalio, uh, Carl Icahn, uh, John Polston, Abby Joseph Cohen. They're they're all from Queens. So uh, yeah, excited to be here and telling you our story once again, Jeremy.
1: Um, yeah, and I, and I should disclose the story has been. We've been working together. You've been been a client of of a firm, so just full disclosure there. Um, you know, when you think about how you build portfolios, like how, any, you know, give a, give our listeners a little bit about how you think about the world, how you allocate across ETFs and, and factors.
2: Okay, so maybe I'll start with just like how do we build a portfolio? So, um, in, in full disclosure, I am not a financial advisor. I've never worked in wealth management. I spent 18 years on um, sell-side trading desks as a quant building portfolios and structuring solutions for uh, hedge funds, asset managers, you know, pensions. Um, And and I thought that I had an edge and I wanted to apply that edge in, in the kind of retail advisory space. So step one would be sitting with a financial advisor and just, you know, going through like this matrix, okay? This matrix kind of works like Okay, what is the goal for the end client? So they usually say, you know, they want growth, they want income, uh, they want hedged upside. Um, So that would be like step one. So now we know kind of how much equity to put in the portfolio and how much to hedge it, let's say, with bonds uh, and if need be alternatives. Step two in the process would be, you know, how much risk, you know, can we take? You know, how much track and error versus the benchmark? Can we invest in factors uh, to try and add uh, some edge? you know, on the margin. Um, You know, do we need to include alternatives? Okay. And when I say alternatives, sometimes advisors, you know, indicate that, you know, we're market timing. And and our point is that we're not market timing. We're just, you know, using our risk budget. And if clients are concerned about downside, then the only way to do that is, you know, to have less equity or to have uncorrelated assets. Um, You know, step three in the process would be, you know, where are we in the economic cycle, are we late cycle, early cycle, that usually dictates which factors work well. So I know earlier in this year and we'll talk about factors and, and our views, but I know um Rechan, you had, you know, kind of questioned me in the low ball, um, which was a factor that we were advocating pretty hard, you know, to start the year. So low ball made a lot of sense given we were late cycle and rates were, you know, kind of trending downward. Uh just to finish the thoughts, so step five would be You know we know where we are in the cycle we know what the client profile is if we can invest in factors do we need to hedge it step five is like the critical component and i think our edge which is we load these etfs into various portfolio construction tools um and and i think what i find a lot of advisors and investors do and by the way this also happened at the institutional level um you know people believe that they are getting you know, one sort of exposure using ETFs and it winds up being very, very different. So once we load up ETFs into a portfolio construction tool, we typically do like a rinse repeat uh, until you get the actual outcome you need. And then the rest of the process is monitoring performance, risk, PNL. So we typically report back to clients, let's say quarterly, we sit with them and we'll have like this hundred page slide deck where we report all their exposures, track and error performance, back to tilts. So, you know, we we've got a good team at Astoria. You know, less than 2 years later, we're overseeing a quarter of a billion in assets. And um, you know, I, I do think we've had, you know, the right kind of process and approach.
0: Hey, yeah. I still remember we had a great discussion and and I think uh, um uh, at that time we mentioned that Lova is sometimes is different when you look at sectors versus Sector constraint, right? I know that when people think about low vol, it actually has a huge sector beds in it. Well, within sector bed, uh, within sector, low vol- lower volatility has been, you know, doing uh, generally well. So, what's what's your take on on those, uh, you know, sector like a kind of a exposure of your clients?
2: So, so we that's a good point. And some ETFs will constrain for the sector, so you don't get two at a band versus, like, a broad S&P or MSCI benchmark. But there are, you know, one or two pretty large low-vol ETFs which don't constrain at the sector level. So you wind up getting, like, a big sector skew. Look, I think right now low-vol is very, very uh, expensive in terms of valuations. Um, I, I do subscribe to, like, this idea, like, if you're going to sin, sin a little bit. And, you know, we broadly speaking and want to be diversified across factors and not make, you know, a big bet on one. Uh, you know, I would say what we did this year is we rotated out of low ball, um, just because, you know, to be buying at these levels, you have to be really bearish because I do think, you know, it is a play on rates uh, ultimately. So I, I, I just think on a return per unit of risk basis, you have more uh, upside in, in other factors, whether it's quality, value. Um, so that's kind of like how we're kind of strategically positioned in the portfolio right now.
1: It's, it's funny to talk about that today. Um, you know, actually today is a pretty good example where you know the markets are generally you know doing well. You know, the S and P's up 50 basis points. One of the low vol indexes I'm looking at today is down 30 basis points. And it's definitely a tilt towards value. Quality is actually done doing pretty well, at least the way that we we look at it. Um, you know, but so it, there's definitely you know people are are going towards low vol, and I think there is this rate sensitivity cyclical element in it um, that may not go in their favor.
2: I, I agree, and and you know just taking it even a step back, I mean, if you look globally, right, because we're all supposed to be globally invested, right? That's what you know the entire street, whether you're buy side or sell side, is pushing is saying invest in, in the U.S. And, and international. And if you look since Jan 2018. You I mean, stocks haven't done anything, um, broadly speaking, right? S&P is up six percent. X U.S. small caps down seventeen. Efa, uh, um, sorry, acqui XUS down nine. MSCI EM down fifteen. Nikkei down seven. So, like, you know, the idea is that like we just we're in this weird part of the cycle where, I mean, to be honest, uh, Jeremy, like I, I've been on. Kind of TV saying I thought the cycle was over and that we're in this new cycle and, and that's I'm going to stick to that view. That was very out of consensus. Um, you know, I think right now, broadly speaking, you know, markets very short-term around because there's just so much bearish sentiment out there. I mean, every every single day this summer in August, you know, you turned on the TV and you felt like the U.S. was going TO recession. And now, literally a month later, you know, everyone's you know think you know everyone's very very bullish again. So. I think now, as we think about, you know, the next one, two years, uh, we've had this out of consensus, you know, defensive, tilted portfolio that is now consensus. So, you know, how do you make money, right? How do you outperform your benchmark? You got to have an out of consensus view. So what we've been doing is is rotating the portfolio gradually um, across more international markets. And, you know, Mark mentioned Japan, you know, kind of having a good um, day and, and, you know, it's trend in well. And so we've been buying some of these other international equity markets, emerging markets, uh, you know, quite a bit this year.
0: Well, that should, um, I think that paid off, right? This year, if you look at international, uh, they have been, uh, you know, not as good as S&P, but they have been uh, pretty positive.
1: Let me just reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with John Davi of Astoria Portfolio Advisors. Um, Yeah, I mean, just to follow up on what Lee Chan was just saying, I mean, I think the third quarter, what I'm looking at, the third quarter's obviously only quite a month old, but uh, you've seen um, a huge move in Europe and Japan and small caps in particular, so sort of cyclical parts of, you know, of Europe and Japan and all international, so it's interesting what's leading here as we go into the fourth quarter, Um, and uh, that's just interesting.
2: Yeah, and and I think my point, like that I mentioned earlier about how stocks haven't done anything on in the last two years, that kind of confirms our defensive posture in, in the portfolio, and and that played out correctly for us, and that translates well for us in terms of how we've done versus our benchmarks. You know, now as we look forward to a year or two, you know, I, I do think that some of these other look, I don't think we're going to have an, a cyclical upswing, and, and we don't try and be market pundits and try and. Forecast. We we do make decisions based on, you know, empirical evidence. But I do think right now you've had these investors that are so enamored with U.S. growth stocks and just U.S. that, you know, there's just a lot of margin of safety overseas. And, and I do think, um, you know, you can start off with like, you know, high quality. So, uh, you know, there are high quality international ETFs which actually have done well. Uh, I mean, your firm has has an index that you know, has outperformed EFA. Um, by 800 basis points this year, so it kind of shows that not all international stocks are created equal. So, so we'd be inclined to kind of dip our toes into like the high-quality segments of, you know, uh, DM and EM.
1: Very interesting.
0: Yeah. Oh, sorry, um, actually, that uh, I wonder whether it has to do in the last five years, advisors have been, you know, a little bit burned. If five years ago they were, you know, go for DM. And then now they're re- you know starting to realize that uh, uh it you know international developed is a, a space that's been uh, ignored a little bit too long.
2: I I, I agree with you. I mean it's it, it's such a big problem, which is why in the beginning when we work with clients, we try and really focus on okay, what is the goal? What is the client like? Well, you know, we just want to navigate that experience because you know fortunately uh, you know most. TV networks or the newspapers just talk about the Dow Jones Index and people want to compare their portfolio versus the Dow or the S&P, and and that's not a realistic portfolio. Uh, You know, you take a ton of risk when you just buy one small segment of the marketplace. Um, I I agree with you.
0: I have a question. When you work with advisors, when they look at their uh, EM, I really have two questions. Uh, One is that, do they care about the currency? Because we talked about currency. Uh, Do they, you know... Care about the currency hedging piece of uh, yen, uh, you know, or they generally, you know, uh, ignore. The second question is, you know, China has been so much news. Uh, there's a lot of, um, you know, me coming from, you know, original from China. I know the sentiment in the U.S. has shifted. Uh, some of the advisors, I don't know. That's why I want to get to your view. Like, are there any appetite? You know, people want to get out of China uh, seriously.
2: Well, you know, maybe on, on, the, on the first point, um, well, maybe me start on the second point. I mean, China, you know, I mean, it's still, you know, performing, you know, pretty well on a relative basis. And the trade wars have been going on for, you know, since January, February of 2018. Um, you know, I, I, I think, you know, China is, is, has a good growth story and, and it's cheap. So we kind of like it, you know, stronger earnings growth relative to, to the U.S., you know, U.S. We are still in an earnings recession, despite what the professor had said early, early uh, on your show. And I agree that earnings, you know, do look good, but um, you know, we're we're not completely done with the earnings season. We've had you know, a couple of quarters of negative growth. Um, you know, I think, like broadly speaking, you know, what we try and do is educate people and just look. You know, U.S. has had this tremendous run; it's up 400 percent. EM is up, you know, 150 percent. You know China is doing things to try and you know stimulate the economy, and you know you've had this you know when when central banks stimulate the economy, you know risk assets tend to you know trade well as you've seen in the last month and and we just try and lean on those probabilities um, along with just investing you know where there's a margin of safety and then just hedging the overall equity risk of the portfolio with, with bonds and alternatives.
1: Yeah, I, I want to get into that that point on alternatives and bonds in the sense that you know you talked about trying to find out of consensus calls and, you know, rates certainly moved a lot you know to start the year and this sort of bottomed and sort of picked back up the last, you know, two months. Do you have a view on the role for fixed income in portfolios today, given you know a TIPS yield of fifteen basis points, like so? There's no quote unquote real yield, and you know how the challenges that poses.
2: So it, 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 you know, the Fed is definitely punishing savers and pushing people at the risk curve. So it's this avalanche now where people are just searching for yield, and I think it's quite dangerous. Actually, um, you know, we we typically get people that say, "Look, you know, I'm not getting anything at the bank. You know, should I buy this, you know, high-dividend yield and ETF for three, four percent?" And you have to explain to them like, "No, because there's 25% in energy." and that is 15% banks, right? So you're making a big kind of sector bet. Um, you know, there are a couple of things in bonds you can do that I think you have a little bit of, uh, of, of edge, like, you know, muni bonds and, you know, mortgage-backed, you know, securities, some secur- securitized areas in the marketplace. But, you know, broadly speaking, uh, if I'm being honest, I, I think fixed income is, you know, very crowded. So, so we're kind of underweighted. We do respect it because it does work. Uh, in months like August, when Ackley's down is you know u s tr- treasury e t f s will be up you know three four uh, depending on the duration and, and obviously the long duration bond is up substantially this year, but it's just bonds have had this incredible run the last you know five, six, seven years i mean you've had strong growth with no volatility, so incredibly high sharp ratios, so we're just trying to educate. investors and advisors and say, look, this is not sustainable. You don't have much more room to be buying treasuries now. You you have to be really, really bearish. And I just think if you believe that, you know, if you're concerned about equity risk, then either, you know, I mean, simply put, you've got too much risk in the portfolio. So lower your equity exposure or choose other areas of the marketplace um, like alternatives that are inversely correlated. Now, alternatives get a bad Uh, name. You know, there are solutions out there that work. They work well for us. Um, And then just separate, this is unrelated to to what most of us do, Um, but, you know, there's, you know, commercial real estate in the state of Texas, let's say, which is pro business. You can get, you know, six to 8% in kind of, you know, commercial, you know, our return on investment. I mean, there's other things you can do in yield, I think, where you have a little bit of margin of safety. Yeah, obviously it's not an invest you know it's not an ETF wrapper but I would just encourage investors to think outside the box when it comes to like buying income just because you you know you need income uh, and then look at alternatives to hedge your equity risk or just simply own more cash
1: yeah so what, what is that bucket of alternatives that you find interesting today
2: so I think um, gold is one in gold equities uh, you know that's kind of like I, I don't think you need to overthink it Right? You've got like, a lot of negative uh, sovereign yield and debt. Uh, as you get closer to the end of the cycle, you know, gold looks more and more attractive. Uh, there are some long, short, market-neutral uh, ETFs that you know, are consistently inversely correlated with stocks. Uh, that has worked well um, just because it's inversely correlated, and it's consistently inversely correlated. Uh, there's merger arbitrage, which you know, is very idiosyncratic. Uh, There's a little bit of like a rate element to it Um, You know if rates trend up that usually bodes a little bit better for merger ARB So like merger ARB has not done as well this year as it did, you know, let's say last year as rates have gone down Those are a couple of the ones that we we've been gravitating towards
1: Yep Um, In terms of Other things you guys are focused on, so trying to be a little bit out of consensus, any other places as you think about for next year where the the biggest, uh, you know, the biggest you'd say consensus views that might be that you're trying to break?
2: I I would say that, um, you know, like diversifying across factors has has worked really, really well for us, and and the research shows you can get higher up on the fishing frontier when you harvest a, a basket of factors. Um, you know, the market is pushing you towards buying some low-cost ETFs uh, because it's you know, now virtually free, it's commission-free, you can trade fractional shares for free. But, you know, again, like if you want to try an outperform the benchmark, you know, you got to do something different. So if everyone's buying a low-cost ETF, then, you know, maybe you don't have as much edge. And, and look, that could work for some people. I'm not, I'm not arguing that it's not the best thing um but you know i just think that like if i'm going to lean on research which shows that the last 50 75 years you you can get higher sharp ratios if you diversify across so what that translates for us is i do think quality still is is attractive it quality is getting a little bit expensive in the u.s um i I think you know but it's still where we are in the cycle I, i think it's this still warrants a position we do like value that we're starting to see these, the rotation into value. Um, it's happened a couple times in the last year. Uh, it tends to come and go, but the market is pushing it more and more. So we, we kind of like that. I, I mentioned to kind of really avoid low vol. Um, one thing on the value trade, you know, it really does remind me when I started in the late 90s, I mean – you know, when you have the recession, growth stocks, you know, which trade a significant multiple, you know, they'll roll over. So value tends to work well, uh, you know, right before a recession. And I just think that, you know, the growth stocks are really, really uh, expensive at this point. You know, financials, we like quite a bit. Rock bottom, you know, valuations, you know, we've got these utility-like businesses, you know, they can't get the leverage, um, you know, we would encourage investors to mix, you know, momentum with value because, you know, they're inversely correlated. Um, so those are a couple things that we're kind of, you know, advocating. Um, we are really, you know, telling people to extend time horizons. I know that sounds a little cavalier, but, you know, we at our firm, we really have no edge in, you know, one month, one quarter return. We, we want to extend, you know, how time horizons so that we can – help people understand that over the course of cycles and years, our process can work and, and we have to stay t- true to the process. So those are a couple of things we're kind of telling people along with, you know, diversifying across all factors and, and geographically.
0: What about the size? Uh, I know that uh, in you know, our multi-factor strategies, we generally have a little bit of size tilt. Like How do you think about size versus the uh, economic conditions?
2: So on a very very long time horizon, like we run some like 401k money and and um, you know like strategies where you've got you know literally you know 10 20 years. So size is absolutely a factor we take advantage of. Um, and, and you know obviously your firm has a has a small cap index that's you know kind of weighted by earnings, which you know has done very well historically. Um, you know, I, I think that in a in a very shorter term strategy, like a year, I think like we'd prefer more mid cap or more large cap is less relying on the credit cycle. Uh, I don't want to make it seem like that's making a tactical bet, but I just think like small caps. Uh, you know, I mentioned earlier, Acxius U.S. small caps down seventeen percent in the last um, year and a half. I mean, that makes sense, right? Because the environment has shifted. Um, and, and liquidity was declining because the Fed was hiking rates and and, and uh, doing quantitative tightening. We'll see in the next you know three to six months, depending on how long the Fed does, um, you know, depending on how long the Fed does uh, you know this program where they're buying Treasury bills, and then on top of that, uh, you know, with ECB you know restarting their uh, their, quant- their you know their quantitative uh, easing program.
1: So, so, John, I, I know you do a lot of education for investors, advisors, do a lot of publishing. Um, you, you sort of talked a little bit about um, why watching TV is detrimental to financial health. We're here on Radio Magic, so uh, we, you know, we agree listening to radio, you get better long-form education. But Why is watching TV detrimental to people's health, financial health?
2: I mean, th- this summer we had friends and family um, – I mean, adults and, you know, young adults, old adults, you know, literally coming to us saying that, you know, should they, you know, de-risk their net worth? And uh, to this point, you know, one person, I've got this second home, should I sell it? And it's like the news just makes you so scared. It's so bad for you, um, which is why we tend to just focus on data and make empirical, you know, decisions based on empirical data. But... It's just not good. Like, and then a month later, you you turn on TV. This is all the networks. I mean, I'm not single at one, but a month later, it's like everything's like back to being hunky dory. So, I, I just think you you got to take emotions out of investing. Um, I I am. To-
0: sorry, I so want to say I totally agree. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think. Uh, uh, sorry. Um, I, if I may China, is that when I think about China, you know, the reason I ask is that, you know, I know a lot of people have, you know, very uh, emotional opinion on China, but from the investment, sometimes those those emotions can get in into the way a little bit. Sorry to interrupt.
2: No, no, no. I mean, I, I, to your point, like, we try not to overthink a lot of things with our investment process. So China's growing, right? A lot of population they're stimulating the economy, and the, and the stock market's you know relatively cheap, so that's why we have an overweight to China.
1: Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM Channel 132, and our podcast producer Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show.